As I sit here unable to sleep, lots of thoughts and feelings keep running through my mind. Of the many, many posts I've made this last week, this may not be the most coherent, but it'll be the most raw, unfiltered look into my mind some of you ever get. George Floyd was killed because he allegedly gave a clerk a bad $20 bill. Man, that is insane. I think back on my childhood where I watched my mom, who did the best she could to provide for us, float checks on a regular basis. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's when you write a check that you know is bad at the time, but by the time it makes it to the bank, the funds will be there. Now, this was a common practice in the 80s and the 90s in poor communities, especially in the days before debit cards, Apple Pay, and Venmo. We were not the only family that did that, or and I know in my heart that there was a black person that ended up in jail or worse because of it. But my mom, a white woman who has never in all the times that I saw her do that, called out on writing those checks, she was always able to write that check. I remember seeing black families be denied to write a check because cashiers knew that they had a history of floating checks, but it was a tool that my family used to survive. Now, I believe that has been proven false that George Floyd paid with a counterfeit bill, but honestly, it didn't matter at the time and it doesn't matter now. Before he had a chance to prove his innocence, he was killed by those sworn to protect and serve. A lot of people have called me emailed me, sent text messages, and reached out about the looting and violence that they've seen on TV, trying to understand. So let me try and explain some of it for you. The initial protest, the looting and the fires were a visceral reaction to what we as a community witnessed. Now, have you ever been so mad about something that you threw something you were holding as a reaction, or you punched a wall in your home or kicked a door because you were angry? If you have, at the time, did it make you feel even a little bit better even though you destroyed something in your own home that you cared about? If so, this is how the black community felt and reacted to watching George Floyd be murdered by the police. Reactively, we turned to destruction in a fit of rage, we punched a hole in our wall. And for a brief moment, it felt better. But then we as a collective went, damn, that was stupid. And you witnessed our community pull together to fix the hole in the wall. Now the burning of the third precinct, that was symbolic, just like dumping of tea into the Boston Harbor was. It sent a clear message that we will no longer stand for this to continue to happen to our people, and now the whole world is listening. Now, I want to be clear that this is not an endorsement of violence, but that is my understanding of what has transpired. You know what else I've seen? I've seen the community pulling together to protect itself from outside forces that want to watch it burn. Outside forces doesn't mean out of state. It means people from within with bad intentions outside of our community. Yes, people from suburban Minnesota came into Minneapolis to take advantage of the situation, and you people are scum. If you are here on my friends list and you went down to cause harm to the city I grew up in, delete yourself before I find out. For some of you, I'm your only black friend, and you may think this gives you a pass on your white privilege. It doesn't, not one bit. My amazing wife and I talk all the time about her white privilege and how she chooses to use it to affect change. I want all my my friends who have ever joked about me being one of the good guys or a white black guy or one of the other countless passive racist jokes you've made about me in the past, I want you to know that I won't stand for that any longer. This is not a threat. It's an observation. If we allow that behavior to continue, we and I am perpetuating a system that allows systemic racism to grow. I hope there is, another, there is never another George Floyd that is murdered, but I know in my heart that there will be. The next time that happens, I want you to picture me there, dead, on the ground. Me, the person whose house you have visited, the person you've broken bread with, the person you shared a drink with, the person who's hugged your children and who still goes in his children's room every night 
right after they fall asleep to kiss them goodnight and tell them daddy loves you. Imagine that it is my lifeless body on the road and imagine how that would alter the course of your life. Imagine the rage because I would want you to feel rage and imagine the oppression and disbelief. Every time this happens, this is how we, the black community feel. We know it could have been us or a loved one and we die a little bit every time it happens. Now, to get even more real, as a biracial black man, I have a ton of internal demons. I have struggled most of my life because parts of the black community, I'm not black enough. I don't have enough street cred. I wasn't as oppressed enough because I grew up with a shield of white privilege. But there's no denying the fact that my skin is black. I distinctly remember a moment in my young adult life when I was teaching karate and running a school. Part of my daily routine was to get to the school before it opened to return phone calls and let people know, get back to people that inquired about classes. I had called and had an amazing conversation with a woman and made plans for her to bring her child in later that same day. All they needed to do was ask for Elias Lemon when they got there. About 10 minutes before she arrived, I had my white assistant instructor take over class so I could greet this person in the lobby. I got a little distracted talking to other parents and missed when they walked in, but noticed the unfamiliar face before too long and went over to say hi. Now, I want you to remember, I'm in a uniform with my name on the back. I go over and say hi and ask to confirm if she's there for our intro class. She confirms that she is, but tells me that she'd rather wait for Mr. Lemon to finish teaching because she had spoken with him over the phone and wanted to work with him. The look on her face when I informed her that I was in fact Mr. Lemon is one I will never forget. I don't sound black over the phone. And with the name Elias Lemon, most people wouldn't assume I'm black either. Was she trying to be racist? No, not one bit. Did she sign up for class? And was I able to impact her child's life positively? Yes, I was. But that doesn't change the fact that she assumed the person in charge was white and not the black guy greeting her at the door. That is white privilege. Back to my blackness struggle. I sit and wonder sometimes if I'm the right voice to help represent the black community. If my voice is the one that should be heard, even if I am not black enough. Well, my days of thinking like that are over. There are no levels of blackness. You are either black or you aren't, and I'm a proud black man. My voice is just as loud and just as important, and I refuse not to use it. If that scares or frightens you, too bad. This is me, accept me for who I am. Now to my white allies, here's what I need from you. I need you to acknowledge the reality of systemic racism. I need you to acknowledge that you have white privilege and that it is a powerful tool. I need you to never again let someone in your presence make a passive, passive or overtly racist statement. When you see that happening, shut that down. I don't care if it's a family member that's talking or a complete stranger, shut it down. I can promise this, the conversations you have with family and friends matter. It will be uncomfortable to call out racism with loved ones, but that little bit of uncomfort might be the thing that saves my life. And know that the things that you are posting on social media in the immediate future sends a message. If you want to condemn the rioting and looting of our community, but not the cause, which was George Floyd's murder, I'm going to call you out on that. If you want to post about your haircut or the fun day you had in the sun while our community is still recovering, that's your prerogative, but again, I see that and it sends a message. To my friends in law enforcement that are out there fighting the good fight, I see you. Your job is hard, but it is a job. Changing the system from within isn't easy, but that's what you're being called on to do. It doesn't need to be public, but please promise me this. If you ever see a person of color being treated unjustly, step in and stop it from happening. Promise me that if you were one of the three cops that were on the scene as George Floyd was murdered, that you would have stopped the guy from killing him. 
promise me that you'll give people of color the benefit of the doubt, just like you would have given me if you pulled me over. If you want me to change my community, you need to change yours as well. Yes, life will soon get passes. The community will start to heal, but I pray we never forget. Justice for George Floyd isn't just the right thing to do now. It's our generation's defining moment. It doesn't just mean convicting the guilty parties. It means reforming the entire system. If we don't have the greatest voting turnout in a generation, we have failed George Floyd. If we don't keep his name alive, he is another black man that has died in vain. Be the change that you want to see in the world. That is my final ask of you today. And finally, for those of you that still have questions, the offer still stands. Call me, message me, get in contact with me if you need help processing what is happening. If you know someone who needs someone to talk to, send them my way. Now, I'm going to go back to bed and try and rest, but my heart is still heavy and my mind is still racing. Hi, it's me, Darby, and that voice you just heard was Elias Lemon reading from his Facebook timeline. Elias is a 36-year-old black man living just outside Minneapolis. Now, I know him through the karate world. He's a fourth-degree black belt and um, was a fierce tournament competitor back in the day. If you Google him, you will find him kicking an ass or two on YouTube. But now he works at a corporate job, and he's a dad. He's married. He's got two kids. Until the end of May, his Facebook feed was mostly about his family or his job, like dad stuff. Um, Think, you know, (laughs) photos of him and his wife um, at an ugly uh, Christmas sweater party. There's like an adorable puppy, um, you know, news about a new home. And then George Floyd was killed and all that changed. He started sharing his own experiences with the Minnesota police and with racism, like the post you just heard. I wanted to talk with him about that. How are you feeling today? How are you doing? Uh, I think like everyone, every day gets a little bit easier. The, the tough part is there's so many like triggers. And I don't like using the word trigger all the time because I'm like, ah, you know, anything can be a trigger. But for me personally, every time I turn on the news or every time I get on social media, there is another like reminder of George Floyd or a reminder of what's happening in America. And that just, it becomes emotionally draining because then you answer more questions about it. It brings up more questions and questions that you don't have answers to. And yeah, it's just, it's a lot, but it gets a little bit better every day. How did you find out about George Floyd's murder? So I live in Minneapolis. I grew up um, 10 minutes from where that happened. And like, you know, everyone else, um, I started hearing through uh, social media before it hit the news that this had happened. Um, like, you know, somebody else was murdered in Minneapolis. You know, they, they killed this guy. And I'm like, oh man, did they shoot another? Like, how are we still shooting unarmed people? And then I saw the video, like everyone else did on the news. And I just like, I jaw, my jaw dropped. I, um, I looked at my wife and I was like, this is insane. Like there was no... No, you know, and as we see more video, we realize that he wasn't resisting. There was no way that man's life should have ended. Um, And in my mind, I was like, this was murder. I asked Elias what the days following Floyd's killing were like for him and what prompted him to start to use his Facebook page in a different way. When I got on right after George Floyd was murdered, I just was, wow, like, I hope they're really paying attention to what is happening in the community that is not negative. Because what you didn't see on TV and what you didn't see um, 
on social media was at first anyways, was the outpouring of support from the community. Um, but that was a small portion of what I was seeing. And most of it was, why are these people tearing down their community? Why are they doing this to themselves? Do they know that nobody listens when you write? Do they know that nobody listens when you loot? Why are they burning things down? You know, wh why? A lot of questions and a lot of disappointment in the black community um, and in a community that most of them have never stepped foot in. So it just, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, I sit and I have these conversations behind closed doors and people are like, wow, Elias, like you changed my thinking on that because you took a chance to hear what I was trying to say without attacking me for it and without judging me for it. And then helped break that down in a way that I could see it through your eyes. I can't walk in your shoes, but at least I can then maybe see through your eyes. And I was like, I have to say something. Um, I don't have the hugest social media following anymore. I've narrowed it down throughout the years, um, but I still have a voice and the people that listen to me have bigger voices. And if I can get to them and help them see um, the light, then maybe they can in turn at least point people in my direction if they don't feel comfortable speaking on it or spread that message of like positivity, you know, throughout. When you say that you want them to see the light, like what does that look like to you? So I've heard this analogy before and I'm going to try and apply it to like this whole George Floyd social justice, systemic racism um, conversation. So when you walk into a room and you flick on a light and you see a mouse, that mouse scatters. When you talk about racism, a lot of people talk about that that visible racism. So that mouse, they're like, oh, this person said this comment that was racist. So what they don't see though, is that mouse then ran behind the wall and there's a whole village of mice living back there and doing their thing. And every once in a while they pop out and they make themselves seen, but for the most part, it lives behind the scene and they are causing damage. They're tearing out insulation. They're chewing through wires. They're compromising the building structure. Um, and that's what the light that I want to be seeing. I want people to realize that if they see one mouse, they hear one racist comment, that behind that, there's a whole system that is in place to make that okay. I talked about um, one of the things that I posted that like, I too have been guilty of letting passive racist comments like exist. I've let people say things like, oh, well, Elias, you're one of the good guys. Uh, or Elias, you know, you're, you're like the whitest black guy I know. And you know, you laugh it off, you joke about it and you're like, okay, like, part for me is a coping me mechanism just to fit in. Um, but that's racist and that can't stand. And um, if we can highlight that, hey, listen, these things attribute to racism, to systemic racism, to keeping people oppressed, then we can start looking at what the whole system is doing because it is truly a whole system that is meant to keep people oppressed. We talked about the protests and the changing demographics of the people getting involved, especially younger people. I think that's what the makeup of our community is now, right? Like I know Minneapolis for one, we have a very diverse population. It's black, white, Latino, Asian, but the white community that is there right now is uh, past middle-aged. Uh, they're either older or they're a lot younger. So um, a lot of people that are my age, you know, early to mid thirties, we've, uh, we've flown to the suburbs, you know, like I have more space. Um, I have a great community. Uh, but it's not the same as Minneapolis. Um, but yeah, there are a ton more young people. And um, one of the things I'm really proud of is the high school that I went to, De La Salle, is right in downtown Minneapolis. It's on Hennepin Avenue. Um, for those of 
people that know there, it's on an island. We were the Islanders. De La Salle student organized on their own, no help from any of the administration, just the students organized, uh, sit in at the Capitol. That didn't get enough news. These are kids, 16, 17, maybe some 18 year olds, but for the most part, they are kids, sophomores, juniors, seniors in high school. And you know, they t- brought a thousand people to the Capitol and uh, did a sit in. Like that's amazing. Um, and it's not just the older generation anymore. It's not just my generation. It's the younger generation too that's saying, you know what, we have a voice and we want to be heard. That's what I wish we got to see more of uh, in the news. Elias has friends in Minnesota law enforcement. I wondered what he was hearing from them. My friends in law enforcement are as pissed off at what transpired as you or I or anyone is. They're, you know, they're logical. They're saying they're people that have hearts, right? You know, a great tragedy of this is there are people on the inside in law enforcement that have been trying to change the system and have been blocked by the blue wall. You know, we talk about the blue line and hold the line um, and the brotherhood. Well, there are those in the brotherhood in that community that are like, hey, our, our brotherhood is broken. And we are letting those that have bad intentions um, steal something beautiful from the community. So they are, you know, of course they wish to remain anonymous because that is their life too. Um, You know, if they want to affect change and they think they can do it from the inside, I fully support that. So what I've been asking them is, hey, what are you seeing? Who are the bad cops? Yeah, I want you to name names. Meet me in a parking lot somewhere and we'll go over who those people are and we'll get those names out there and we'll let the world know who the bad cops are, the ones that are out there to cause harm. Um, but also, what is the process? Why? What I've been looking at recently is, okay, we know there are bad cops out there. And we know there are systems in place to get rid of those bad cops. And in Minnesota, uh, the state has mandated this binding arbitration process. So binding arbitration, all that says is when there is a contract dispute, and it doesn't have to be termination related. It could be anything that's in that contract that we are going to dispute. Um, instead of going through the legal system, so instead of going through the court system, we will meet with an independent third party and we will plead our case to that third party and that third party will make a decision on whether um, what you're arguing for is right or wrong. Well, unfortunately, when it comes to bad cops, you can fire a bad cop, someone that you know is going to cause harm, someone that you know has bad intentions, and then they go through the binding arbitration process and the arbitrator goes, you know what? Um, the guy needs his job back. And then they get their job back. They get either put on paid administrative leave or they get put at the desk. But after a certain point in time, they're put back in the streets. And everything that the process tried to protect and correct has just been undermined by a broken process. So they are feeding information to people like myself and the others that they know and trust to say, hey, here's how you attack the system and this is how you dismantle it. And you know what? If that means we have to tear the entire system down and start afresh. I support that too. What I am this believer that all of these battles have to be fought on multiple fronts, right? Like you can't just try and attack one thing. You have to attack it at multiple levels and through multiple avenues. Like you need people on the street marching. You need people in the courtrooms bringing legal battles against the system. You need people that are willing to stand up to the union. The Minneapolis Police Union is represented by a man who has ties to white supremacists who is a rumored member of the KKK and who has never come out and said, I'm not those things. It's, it's absolutely insane to me. The problem is, is I started, I'm like, okay, let's, let's start a petition. And you know what? I don't want an online petition because 
you know, online, it's easy to gather signatures. I want people to see that we put in the work that we marched in the streets or we went door to door and we collected half a million signatures. And I want to dump it on the governor's front lawn and say, do something about this. And someone went, well, governor can't do anything. He's the head of a union. He has to be voted out by the people. Well, and the people have said again and again and again that, no, we want this guy that we know you all think is a white supremacist to lead us. So that, in my mind, means the whole system has to go. Like Metro P or Minneapolis PD needs to be replaced. This isn't like it's a new thing for them where they've had a reputation for disproportionately harassing people of color. This has been going on since I was a kid. You know, I'm 30, I'll be 37 soon. I remember being hassled by the cops for just riding my bike back with bubble gum in my hand asking where I'm going. I remember getting pulled over as a 14-year-old boy with my mom driving. I'm in the car. The cop leans in and says, is this black man harassing you, ma'am? She's like, this black man's my son. What are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, we've had rumors of activity in this area and people forcing people to take them places they don't want to go. I'm like, are you kidding me? This woman is my mother. And as a 14-year-old, I didn't realize like how terrible that was. I knew I was scared, but I didn't realize how terrible it was. But like, this has been going on for generations. And sometimes you have to cut the tree down when the roots are bad. Yeah, that story you just told, I have a friend who lives in Texas and she has biracial kids and same exact story. Her son must've been maybe 16, but um, was she driving or was he driving? I can't remember, but they got pulled over and, um, and, and so that he could run an ID check on her kid. And she finally lost her patience and got out of the car and like, you know, um, had a word with the cop, which of course she can do because she's white. Um, but, you know, I, I want you to talk a little bit more about Minneapolis, because I think like you hear of those stories coming out of Texas and that's what you kind of expect out of the South. So I will say that the people of Minnesota are some of the best people in the world, right? Like Minneapolis in, in particular is the people are so open minded. Like that is why Minneapolis for a long time was called like the welfare capital of the US, because we go above and beyond to make sure that if you are a minority, an immigrant, um, someone that is disenfranchised, that you can come here and we will give you the tools to succeed. But that's been since like the 80s. Before that, and I, I, I'm not a great historian, I've just started doing my research on this. I've heard people talk about it before, but the way Minneapolis was designed and the way the interstate and the highway system was designed was to cut through black neighborhoods. And this was done in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was these pockets of prosperity in Minneapolis that were black communities. And as we started to gain some generational wealth, the city came through and said, you know what, uh, we need to put a highway right here. We can't run it parallel to the train tracks where it would make logical sense for this to go. We're going to run this freeway right through your community and we're going to pay you pennies on the dollar of what your land what your home, what your businesses should be worth. So the institutional racism in Minneapolis runs deep. Um, and Minnesota in general, you know, we like to think of ourselves, we vote Democrat. We uh, are, very, you know, we have liberal leaders in our two largest cities. Our governor is a liberal. Um, and yet, if you look at the map come like national presidential election night, it reflects so much of America where the heart of the city is represented by, you know, progressive liberal thinking people. And then outside of that, you have a very conservative mindset still. And that then ties into like Minneapolis police. And 
the community I live in now, so I live 20 minutes outside of the city, um, which is still close enough that I really wasn't worried that any of this would spill out to the suburbs, but you got to think like, okay, like what happens if it does spill out here? Well, the police in my community live in my community. They're here. I know where they live. They know where I live. I see them on a regular basis. 100% of the, the cops that police our area live in our area. In Minneapolis, it's 8%. 8% of the people that police in Minneapolis live in Minneapolis. They don't represent the people that live there. They're coming from wherever into a community they don't fully understand and policing in a way that has terrorized the people for generations. Um, back to Bob Kroll for a second. So the, the leader of the police union, um, the one of the council members of the third district where the police precinct burned down, said, hey, listen, it's time to fund defund Minneapolis Police Department. And here's why. A couple years ago, when we brought up all these issues that we were having with their policing tactics, they stopped responding to phone calls in our district. They would let it ring and ring and ring. And then when people would call and be like, hey, I have an emergency. What is happening? The union's answer, Bob Kroll's answer was, well, tell them they should call their legislator and make sure that they don't question our tactics. Like, what? That's mind blowing. Like, you're admitting that you're not serving the area because you don't like the way that they're questioning what you're doing. It's just, it's so systemic that it's even hard to point like where, like what is worse. The new-ish chief, I, I, always, I always mess his name up, Ara. Arredondo. Yeah, so he's a good guy, right? I think, right? Um, so with my conversations with people in law enforcement, they think he's a good guy. But, you know, the good guy continues to do what's hard when it's hard. Like he hasn't gotten rid of cops. And I know we've got this binding arbitration process, but we can reassign them to desk jobs. Um, is he decided that, Hey, listen, I'm just going to do the best I can. And, you know, I'll try and keep the people that I know are going to be the big troublemakers out of the streets. I'll have them police different areas. Like I, he hasn't come out and said, Hey, listen, I acknowledge there's a huge problem in this community. And here is what I am doing to fix it. Like tell the public so we can hold you accountable. And if we don't see the change, we want you to go. And that's what I think needs to happen. We need to know what the plan is to fix things. One of the people that I, you know, I started this this uh, conversation on Facebook and said, Hey, listen, I know I'm not the legal mind here that needs to be running this, but okay, how do we do this? How do we do that? How do we do this? And someone said, Hey, listen, let's get rid of MPD. Like just disband them. They're gone. We'll defund them. They're gone. We'll bring in the Hennepin County Sheriff, which has a much better track record, not great, but a much better track record of being fair when it comes to policing the community. And let's have them step in, in the interim while um, we rebuild this police department with people that we know have good intentions. And I think that, you know, at least if it's transparent and we know what they're doing, we can hold them accountable to it. You mentioned somewhere in your post that um, you have, you know, like like right thinking white people who you've got people who who think they're doing the right thing, who don't think that they're doing anything racist or who say that, you know, slavery was hundreds of years ago. It's not, you know, I didn't own slaves. Um, I'm not racist. What do you expect me to do? Like, what do you say to those ostensibly good people? Right. That's tough. I've actually fielded more conversations about that, like offline on the phone through text message uh, in the last eight days than I have in my entire life where people are wanting to use me as a sounding board. Like, Elias, is this racist? So this is tough, right? Like, I'm as guilty as the next person of making jokes, racial jokes. Um, rate or joking is one way that people deal with trauma. 
Um, so there's going to be a point in time where, you know, this gets not this situation, but we're, we're not going to take joking off the table as a way to cope with trauma. Um, but you have to, people have to take a step back and read the room. If everybody is telling you that by saying, well, I've never owned slaves, so I can't be a racist. And they're telling you that that's a racist comment. Then that's a racist comment. Yes, you didn't own slaves. And no, I wasn't a slave. But um, if I walk into an interview and we have the same credentials, it's been proven that it's more likely that the white person will get the job than the black person. That's maybe not a conscious thought, maybe subconscious, but that's the result of slavery for all, all those years ago. Like, so the things that happened in the past still affect the things that happen today. The other argument I heard is, uh, Elias, why, like, why can't we have Confederate statues in the South? If we get rid of those, that's erasing our history. I'm like, are, are you, are you kidding me? Like, we're supposed to celebrate, I, as a black American, I'm supposed to celebrate your Confederate heroes just because, well, you know, that is something that is a history that we don't want to erase. Well, we erase history all the time that we don't want to talk about. We can still talk about it in a history book, but I don't need to be reminded of it when I walk into your city hall. I don't need to be reminded of it when you drive by and you have your Confederate flag. Yeah, put that, put that shit in the museum, man. So, I mean, and those things need to come down. And if you want to have it somewhere, yes, put it in a museum. There are lots of things that we talk about in a museum because that's a time and place for that. But a public park is not a place for that. Um, but back to your, like, people that are like, well, I, I'm not a racist because of this. No one's saying that you're a racist, but we're asking you to reevaluate your thinking. We're re I'm asking you to challenge yourself to say, okay, why do I hold this belief in my mind? And is that belief still right with where we are today? I know for me personally, I had to do some self-reflecting on the way people protest, um, and shutting down freeways. I was against that at first because I thought it disproportionately affected people of color and people that relied on public transportation to get to and from work. I am privileged in the fact that I can call my boss and say, hey, boss, freeway shut down, I'll work from home. But people of color rely on that. And maybe it's their third time missing work that week or that month. And now they're out of a job. Well, that hurts that person. But I had to reframe that as people are saying, no, this is valid. This is valid. And go, you know what? Okay, I see it. It's not just that people are, it's hurting people of color. It's forcing conversation. It's making, you know, our white allies that have a problem with it go, okay, this makes me mad. I want to run these drivers over. Wait, that's not a rational thought. Why are they here? Okay, let's have a conversation about why. So they aren't here the next day. So you're allowed to have a thought at one point and say, and then grow from that thought and say, you know what, that was wrong. So if you were thinking, well, I'm not racist because I have a black friend. Well, that's fine. But just because you have a, a black friend, that doesn't make you not racist. Like you don't see the color in that person. You just see that person. But do you see other black people in the same way that you see that person, your friend? Because if not, then maybe you do like you need to evaluate what's going on there. Yeah, I can't remember if I saw this on your Facebook page or another black friend, but there was it was a meme that said, wow, I just realized that some of my white friends actually don't like black people. They just like me. It wasn't me, but that's a great one. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I've got family, my wife's side, that are like, Elias, you're not one of those guys. I'm like, the fact that you can stay there and say that to me means you don't get it and you're a racist. Like, what do you mean I'm not one of those guys? I am one of those guys. If you didn't know me, I would be one of those guys. Words have power. Perception is reality. If I perceive what you're saying as racist, 
then it's probably racist. And that's where I challenge people to step back and read the room. Like if everyone around you is saying, dude, your actions, your thought process on that is racist, reevaluate, have a critical conversation with yourself on, okay, why is everyone standing against what I'm saying? I don't believe myself to be racist. Okay. Yep. Now I can see where they're coming from and I can see how that can be construed as racist. Yeah, I'm going to post in the show notes, guys, there's um, there's a, a place online you can take a, an implicit bias test, which is it's, it's, it's you look at pictures of black and white people and you have to very quickly make some value judgments. And you might be surprised what um, your test reveals about your subconscious thinking about people of color. Um, I'll have to track it down because I can't I'm, I think it's I think it's on the Harvard website, but I'll find it and I'll put that in the show notes. And I really encourage people to do it because um, even I who I, I know I consider myself to be, a, you know, a absolutely a, not just not a racist, but vigorously anti-racist. And even I had like a slight, you know, a slight implicit bias against um, black people. So that was um, hard to face. And I really suggest that all white people do it. Um, Elias, where can people follow you if they want to get involved in um, the initiatives that you're putting together in Minnesota to try to change things there? Can people just friend you on Facebook or do you have a Twitter? What's your deal? Just friend me on Facebook. I don't Twitter. I don't tweet. I get lost in the madness that is Twitter. So I, I abandoned that a long time ago. I'm on Instagram, but not really. I, you know, my age is showing where I'm like, I don't really know how to use this platform. So Facebook is where most of it is. Um, I'm gathering resources right now to try and combine all of the information that I'm getting. And, uh, but I'll put that on Facebook as well, where you can find that. He's in my friends list guys, but if you friend him, make sure you send him a note so that he knows that you, you that you heard him on the podcast and that you want to, um, you want to, you want to follow him to see about some of the work that he's doing in Minnesota. Yes. Yeah, that is important because I have gotten a lot of friend requests from people recently because I'm speaking out and becoming vocal that. If I don't know it, if it's not a friend of a friend or friend of someone that I know, they're not getting accepted because I'm not giving you an inside look to what we're working on. And that's the show. I will post a link to Elias's page so that you Minnesotans can get involved and help him. And you non-Minnesotans can see the resources he's posting about how you can help from afar with your money. Also in the show notes, instead of three good things, you're going to find three things to help white people become better at anti-racism. Today's three things are um, you've got a great animated video about systemic racism, a link to an implicit bias test you can take online to see how bad yours might be, and an op-ed that might make you think twice about sending that text to your black friend about how they're doing or what you can do. Again, this is for the white people um, to help. Now, sometimes those texts are super welcome and sometimes people are really open to having those conversations. You'll notice that Elias seemed really happy to be fielding those texts and Jeff Seidner actually posted on his page, uh, my my guest from last episode, um, inviting those conversations. But some folks are tired and just like think twice, especially if you're not like really close to the person. Just, you know, just think about it before you throw that text out there. Um, the article also also offers some really concrete ways that you can help. And again, it involves your money and maybe your body. Um, all right. Uh, that's going to do it. I hope you are hanging in as well as you can. Please subscribe to the show wherever you are listening to this thing and maybe leave me a rating or review in the Apple Podcast app because that is where most people still find their podcasts. Okay, take care and I will talk to you soon.